0: chapter 50, and we'll make it a short one, it's a, well, relatively short. We'll, we'll make it a short one. We're going to finish Genesis because next week we are going to start the book of Revelation. So uh, turns out that book is singular. It is not Revelations, <laughs> so we need to know that, and uh, we'll start jumping into that next week. I know that there's a lot of people excited for that, and so we need to finish Genesis this week, and we're coming to the end of a two-year journey through the book of Genesis. And uh, it's been an interesting two years. It's been a joyful two years. And I I think that we've learned a lot about Genesis during this time, learned a lot about God during this time, and His plans and His blessings for His people. And, And you really, you get a lot of Christ in Genesis, don't you? More than you would initially think. And you begin to see... How there are so many pictures of what Jesus would do, and what God was ultimately going to do in Christ, even in the Book of Genesis, and and as we come now uh, to the the last chapter, chapter fifty, I want to summarize a few things for you because we're really just going to focus on verses fifteen through twenty-one tonight. Okay, so so if you have your Bibles, just be there in Genesis fifty. You want to have it in front of you so you can look down, but uh, just know that a few things have happened. Jacob, you remember, he was blessing all of his children before he died, and then he did die, and he had a request. He said, hey, don't bury me here. Take me back to the land that Abraham bought, where Abraham was buried, where Sarah was buried, and I want to be buried uh, with my uh, my family. And so uh, Joseph and the brothers, they honor their father's wishes, and they actually take him back to that land. They bury him. They mourn. And then they come back to Egypt because that's where the family is living now, right? They're in the land of Goshen, in the land of Egypt, and they return. And it's, something interesting happens. Is, as the brothers and Joseph return to Egypt, the brothers become paralyzed by fear. It's something interesting that happens, right? They've, they've had this joyful reunion. Everything's great. They've been reconciled. Everybody's getting along. No one's fighting anymore. They all love each other but when they come back to Egypt, they're paralyzed by fear. And they're afraid that that now that Jacob is dead, Joseph's going to turn on them. They start to believe that Joseph was really just tricking them, that he was pretending to forgive them, that that he was pretending to get along with them, just to try to keep the peace while Jacob was still alive, because he's old, you don't want to set up your old elderly father. And and so they think that Joseph had just been pretending, but now that Jacob is dead, they think, well, all that's gone. And Joseph, he's going to pay us back for that great sin that we did against him, right? They think he hasn't forgotten what we did all those years ago, and he might have been pretending, but now that Jacob's dead, he's coming for us. And so they're really really troubled by this and and it's, it's interesting, if you, if you try to analyze what's going on here, the, the fear actually goes much deeper than what initially appears, right? Because they're pinning it on Joseph. Isn't that what they're doing here? They're pinning it on Joseph, and they're saying, hey, he's been pretending. Now that Jacob's dead, he's going to turn on us. But, but there's a deeper fear here. You see, what they're actually afraid of is that they haven't truly been forgiven of their sins by God, by Joseph and that all their former sins, the sins of their past, all the things they've done, they're going to come back on them and they're going to have to pay for it and they are trembling in fear. That's the situation here and it's something that I think we can relate to today, right? Because they're struggling to believe that they can truly be forgiven considering what they've done. Anybody ever struggle with that in here before? It's just me? Yeah? And, and this, this, you know, it can happen from time to time. So, so you know, a common occurrence, if, if you get on social media, for instance, maybe Facebook, and you see the name or possibly a friend request from someone from your past, and all of a sudden you start remembering a conversation you had with that person or something you said about that person or something you did to that person and you start to ask yourself again can i really be forgiven even after i did that or perhaps for you maybe you're in the grocery store you're in walmart you're out about town and you see someone that you know that you've sinned against and what do you do you go up to him and you say hey listen i'm so sorry <laughs> i was in the wrong could you please forgive me no what do you do you're like i don't even need to go, i don't even need to go to the grocery store today right like <laughs> we've got plenty to eat at the house i don't need to be here <laughs> we got frozen pizza so you you avoid them at all costs right because you're reminded of what you did in the sin that came from you and you begin to wonder again i know i'm a christian now but have i truly been forgiven can i truly be forgiven and that's the the question that the brother the brothers are struggling with here that's the question that they're wondering and and as we look at these verses we learn a lot about the importance of forgiveness and what it means to truly be forgiven by God. So I want, you, I want you to look with me there at verses 15 through 17. Genesis 50, verses 15 through 17. It said, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. And so they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Now, this understand this was almost certainly a lie, right? Um, there's nothing recorded in Scripture that has Jacob saying, hey, when I die, I want you to go and send a message to Joseph and just beg him to forgive you of your sin, make sure you confess it all over again, all that. No, no, this is a lie, just plain and simple. Jacob did not say this. And if he had said it, wouldn't he have said it directly to Joseph? He had all the children in front of him at one time. He's saying blessings, and he's not really holding anything back. He's like, hey, Reuben, you're not that great. You're not getting anything. (laughs) Levi, Simeon, you guys are wild. We know what you've done. You're evil. You hate people. You're angry. You're not getting anything but I've got my favorites over here. You know, like he's not the type of person to shy away from things like this. If he really wanted to relay this message, he would have said it directly to Jacob and, or Joseph and say, Joseph, you need to forgive your brothers. And so notice what the brothers are doing here. It's actually pretty interesting. They're, they're fearful that they haven't been forgiven of their sins, and so they sin in order to ensure they'll be forgiven of their sins. I mean, do you see that, right? Like, how ironic is that? How crazy is that? They're worried that, man, we haven't been forgiven of our sins. What do we need to do? How do we be forgiven? Well, we need a sin in order to make sure we're truly forgiven of our sins. And we can go to some extreme lengths sometimes to make sure we're forgiven. Right? I mean, that's what they're doing here. They've thought about this as a group. They've obviously talked about it. And so they've schemed and they've plotted once again. And they do everything they should do except the one thing, or they do everything they can except the one thing they should have done in the first place. And Joseph, being the wise man of God that he is, actually points out what they should have done in the first place. So I want you to look there, verses 18-19. through Notice what Joseph says to them in response. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? What does Joseph point out? He's not God, that's right. It should be very obvious, Right? But the brothers missed this somehow. Joseph recognizes it. He goes, hey, I I recognize that you guys want to be forgiven. I recognize that there's some deep-rooted shame and guilt issues going on here connected to this sin way back in your past. But Joseph quickly points out, he goes, here's the thing, guys. I'm not God. (laughs) If you want to be forgiven of your sins, I can't do that. I can forgive you in my own heart. But if you want to be rid of that shame and that guilt, if you truly want to be forgiven of what you've done, you need to take that to God, not me. They do everything except go to God for their forgiveness and for their assurance of forgiveness. And What we need to remember today, folks, is that we are first and foremost accountable to God. Isn't that right? I mean, think about some of the worst sins in the Bible. I mean, when David was sinning with Bathsheba, He said, against you and you alone I have sinned. Was he talking to Bathsheba there? No, he was talking to God. We are first and foremost accountable to God. Now that doesn't mean you don't go and ask someone's forgiveness for what you've done to them, but that means that before you go and talk to someone else, you need to talk to God. You need to take that sin to God, need to get right with God, and then go and seek reconciliation with other people. But we'll do all sorts of things to try to make ourselves forgiven won't we we'll go to all sorts of lengths to try to rid ourselves of that guilt and that shame that comes with the sins of our past or even the sins that we still struggle with I mean just think about some of the things people do today like some people will go to a priest to seek forgiveness right it seems simple it seems like oh that's just a common thing but does that make sense If I want to be forgiven of sins in my life, is the first thing I should do is to go to another human who is a sinner in the eyes of God and ask that person to take my sins to the throne room of God in order to make sure that I can receive forgiveness through this person for my sins from God. Does that make any sense at all? Again, I've said it a million times. There is one mediator between God and man, and it is not your local priest. It's Jesus Christ. That's why you don't need to go to a priest. You can come and you can confess sins to me and I'll pray with you, but I can't forgive you of that sin. Only God can do that. But that's what people do. They want to rid themselves of guilt and shame. So what do they do? They go to a priest. You are like, okay, well, I'm not Catholic. It's easy to pick on them, right? (laughs) But let's just think about some of the things we do, right? Some people will up their church attendance. I've been sinning a lot lately. You know what I need to do? I need to get in church. Hey, that's a good thing. But that's not going to ultimately forgive you of your sins. That that guilt and that shame is not going to go away just because you're in this church building two more times a week than you were before. Some people will commit to some other religious activity. They're like, you know what? I've been sinning a lot lately, so here's what I need to do. I need to start serving in the church. I need to be involved in the missions activities of the church. I need to do this. I need to do that. All sorts of religious activities. I need to give more money in the tithing. You know, when we pass around the plates, I'll do that. And that's going to make me feel better about myself. But is that true forgiveness? No. You're just trying to rid yourself of a feeling, but you're not actually seeking forgiveness from the one person who has the ability to forgive you of your sins. We're doing the same thing that the brothers did, but we're just putting a modern twist on it, are we not? It's the same thing over and over. We give ourselves to these things, trying to alleviate ourselves of this guilt and this shame because we feel all sorts of guilt and shame for our sins when all we have to do is go to God. You take it to God. Lay your sins out before him. Confess your sins before him. Repent before him. He's the one person who can actually forgive you of your sins. And so first and foremost, we are accountable to God. The other thing that I want us to recognize here that I think is really important is that we are not God. Right? Joseph was quick to point that out. He said, hey, am I in the place of God? He's said, you got a situation here, you need to take that to God. I'm not God how much easier do you think our life would be if we would recognize this same truth just occasionally? (laughs) That we're not God? That we can't control the future? That that we don't have the power? That we are not the sovereign rulers of the world or even our lives? How much better would our lives be if we just simply were willing to say, I'm not God, and God is? (laughs) How often do we act like we're God though, right? Someone offends you? You're like, "All right, I've got the upper hand now. They made the mistake, you know, I'm not saying this applies to any marriages, but, you know, they made the mistake. Let them come and grovel. Let them be the ones to say they made the mistake. They come to me, and I've got forgiveness in my hands, and they better come and ask for it. I'm not God, <laughs> right? I don't get to determine who is and is not worthy of forgiveness. Think about that when it comes to evangelism as well. How often do we, as church people, look down our noses on certain type of people? Maybe they've got some tattoos. Maybe they've got some long hair, ripped jeans. They don't look the way we want them to look. Maybe they don't live in the right side of town. And we go, hmm, I'm not going to invite them to our church. There might be a church for them somewhere. It's just not here. We're not God. And we don't get to determine who is and is not worthy of salvation, who is and is not worthy of entrance into the kingdom of God. I love the fact that our church has former prisoners in it. You do know why? Because it shows that no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. I would hate to be part of a church full of people who live in nice houses, in nice neighborhoods, who've lived a squeaky, clean life and just feel so great about themselves and saying this is a church of perfect people. We're a church of broken people and we serve a perfect God. And he calls people from the worst walks of life to come and join his family and be part of his kingdom. And you need to remember what you've been rescued from the next time you're willing to judge someone for what they're currently dealing with. I'm not going to get off on that too much. That's going to come up in another sermon pretty soon. But I will just say we would do well to remember that we are not God and God is. All right, so here's the other thing I want you to notice. Look at verse 20. The Bible says here, this Joseph still speaking to his brothers. He says, As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now, how good is that verse? Joseph's looking at his brothers, the people responsible for his terrible life, a life of pits and prisons. A life of false accusation after false accusation. People who have completely derailed his life, brought all this misery upon him, and he says to them, you meant it for evil. But after years of walking with God, and years of reflection, and years of prayer, he says, but I realize now, you might have meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Now there's an important lesson there. He's saying that God is the one who is working behind the scenes to bring about His purposes even through the sinful actions of others. And this raises a pretty big theological question, doesn't it? One that we're definitely going to solve tonight, I assure you. You ever heard of the the problem of evil? Anybody familiar with that? You heard the phrase, the problem of evil? If God's sovereign, if He's all good, and He's all loving, and he's all-powerful, why is there evil in the world? If he's all-powerful, why doesn't he stop it? If he has the power to stop it but doesn't, then how can he be all good? These are ancient questions. And notice here, there's one act with two wills involved, right? Do you see that? I want to try to break this down best I can. There's one action. What is the action? The brothers betraying Joseph. That's the action, okay? One action, but there's two wills involved. There's man's will and there's God's will. Man intended one thing with this action and God intended something entirely different through the same action. That's something we call compatibilism, all right? So some people teach that man is robot. That's not biblical. Other people teach that man basically has the same kind of will as God, a libertarian free will. That's unbiblical. What the Bible teaches is something called compatibilism, that man's will is compatible with God's will. And this this text shows that beautifully. There's one action, but there's two wills. And they are compatible because they both work in concert together to bring about God's intended purposes. And so some people will say, well, God doesn't ever have anything to do with evil, sinful actions. Is that true, church? It can't be, right? Because the Bible is saying here, God had a purpose in these sinful actions. So how do we make sense of this? What do we do with this? Because people are going to raise this question and say, hey, this bad thing happened, this sinful thing happened, where was God in that? And they don't want to hear, well, God was right there in it. Using it to bring about his greater purposes. They might not want to hear it, but that's actually what the Bible teaches. So here's a great example. I I love using this example from Isaiah chapter 10. You don't have to turn there, but just mark it down. Write a note, and you can go study this later, because it's really good. Isaiah chapter 10, verses 5 through 7. This is what the Bible says. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. So this is God speaking, okay? So notice this, Assyria is the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. So Assyria, my anger, their staff is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him. So he's talking about sending Assyria against his own people, the people of Israel. Against the people of my wrath, I command him to take the spoil and seize the plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. What is the Bible saying there? Assyria is going to go and invade Israel and God is commanding them to do so. That their fury is actually God's fury and the staff in their hands is God's anger towards them, right? Assyria is doing it, but but God, he's saying, it's all me, right? And notice this, it says in verse 7, but he does not intend so. That doesn't mean that Assyria is a robot that God is using. It means that Assyria doesn't realize that God actually has purposes behind what they're doing. He doesn't realize, or Assyria, the nation, doesn't realize that God is actually involved in this situation. His heart does not think so. But, this is key, verse 7, it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. So the Lord is saying there that Assyria had it in their heart to go and conquer other nations. It's what they wanted to do. Did God change their desires at all? Yes or no? No. Did God make them do anything that they didn't want to do? No. They wanted to invade other nations. They wanted to plunder Israel. It was in their heart to do so. And so God says, okay, I'm going to send you to Israel. You're going to do what your heart wants to do, but I also have purposes and plans in this. And then get this, verse 12, this will blow your mind. When the Lord has finished all His work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem... He will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria Assyria, and the boastful look in his eyes. In other words, the Bible is saying there, as soon as Assyria gets done doing what they're doing, God's going to punish Assyria. And people look at that and they're like, well, that's crazy, right? God's the one sending them to Israel. God's the one who's saying that their staff is my fury. Their anger is my fury. I'm the one sending them. They're doing what I'm telling them to do. So why does God punish them? Because it was sin, was it not? He punishes them because they did a sinful act. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And they did it because they wanted to, didn't they? You see, we have this weird idea today that's been really influenced by secular philosophy, and we won't get into too much of that, but, but we have this idea That a free will means that I can do whatever I want to all the time. And and that's not the biblical idea. The biblical idea of man's will is that man's will is in bondage to sin. And so man acts in accordance with his desires. Do you understand that? Are you tracking with me here? A will is to act in accordance with your desires. So do people have free wills? Yes. But, and there needs to be a huge but there, man has free will, but... Their desires are corrupted, are they not? I mean, the Bible says in Romans chapter, uh, chapter 8, in verses 7 and 8, that man cannot submit himself. The natural man, the person who is innocent, cannot submit to the law of God. He's not able to. And not only that, he has no desire to. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14, that the, the natural man rejects the things of the Spirit of God, rejects the things of the gospel, because they're folly to him, and he's not able to. In other words, does man have free will? Yes, but the will is corrupted. It's in bondage to sin. And so every desire of the natural man is sin all the time. If you take a person who's not a Christian and you ask them what they desire, the answer is going to be sin. Now, it won't be their answer, but according to the Bible, it is sin. They're never going to choose to do what the Lord wants them to do. They can't. They're never going to choose to seek out God. They can't. They're never going to desire the things of God. They can't. Why? Because man has been corrupted by sin. So does man do what he wants to do? Yes. And that's the problem. Because it's sinful all the time. Do you remember what God said at the beginning of Genesis before the flood? He looked on the hearts of man and it was what? Pure evil all the time. That's the problem with man's will. Do we have free will? Of course we do. The problem is our will needs to be freed even more. We need to be released from the bondage of sin and actually given a true free will according to the Bible. Because if you think about it like this, Adam and Eve had the the purest of free will, right? They could choose good or they could choose bad, right? That's what the Bible says. Here, you've got this great tree leads to life. Here's this one tree in this entire beautiful garden you can't eat. Don't do it. What do they do? They choose wrongly. (laughs) Ever since then, Man's will has not been able to choose between good and bad. It just chooses bad all the time. And then comes along Jesus. And one of the beautiful things that Jesus does for us is he actually releases those chains of bondage that we have towards sin and he frees our will so that only the Christian has the ability to choose right and good and also bad. Christians aren't perfect. We don't have the type of will that we're only going to choose good all the time. be great if we did but we do have the ability to choose to, to follow God in His ways because of what Jesus has done in our lives, or we can choose to go astray. And so the Bible is saying here that compatibilism means that man will do what man wants to do, but right alongside their will is God's will, and God is going to do what God wants to do. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. And so God is not responsible for sin. Did God make Assyria do anything they didn't want to do? No. They did exactly what they wanted to do. And it aligned with the purposes of God. Did did the brothers do anything that they didn't want to do? No. They did exactly what they wanted to do. And it was right alongside the purposes of God. This is how we explain the problem of evil. The problem of evil, at its root, is that man has been corrupted by sin And needs to find salvation in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't need to explain evil. God's not responsible for it. We don't need to explain why it's allowed to happen. It's easy to explain. It's because man is corrupted with sin. And as long as man is given to sin, there's going to be evil in this world. How do you explain natural evil like hurricanes and tornadoes? That's not man's fault, is it not? Do you not remember Genesis 3? It was because of man's sin that the whole creation was affected, right? That's why we read in Romans 8 the creation is now groaning and aching for the revelation of the glory of the sons of God. Of course we're responsible for it. The whole reason this world has evil in it at all, whether it's morality, you know, whether it's ethical, whether it's man against man, whether it's natural evil like hurricanes and tornadoes and flooding, it all at its root comes back to sin. And that's on us. That's not God. And Joseph is trying to explain that deep theological problem in a very succinct way, he says very simply, "You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good." And, and and I just you know I'll try to make this very quick, but I just want you to understand an important point for us to understand this evening as we read this is to know that God works in all things to bring about His purposes, even evil and sin. Because did you notice here, there's an important thing that Joseph said. That that what they did was evil, God meant it for good, but the purposes of God there was that many lives would be saved even to this day through something they did so long ago. So notice what Joseph is saying. God worked through the sinful acts of people in betraying a person who was innocent... To save the lives of many. What does that sound like? Sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? it? Sounds an awful lot like Jesus. Would you say that the cross of Christ, His crucifixion was a sin? I'd say it's probably the worst sin that's ever taken place. To kill the innocent Savior? To crucify Him on a cross? Of course it was sin. Was it the will of God? Absolutely it was sinful men by their own free volition betrayed the innocent Messiah and sent Him to death on a cross so that many lives would be saved even to this day. Man meant it for evil, for sure. They thought they won the victory over Jesus. We've killed Him. We've rid ourselves of Him. Who got the ultimate victory? there? <laughs> Jesus. Crushed the head of the serpent. Got the ultimate victory. And God's will was done. He brought about the salvation of many sons to glory, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 2. And so here's, if you want to just think about this to your own life. There's no changing the things that have happened to you. And we can all relate to this. Sin has happened to us, has it not? We've caused a lot of sin. We need to be ready to admit that. But sin has also happened to us. And there's no changing the things that have happened to you, but there's also no telling the things that God can do through what has happened to you. And there's hope in that, is there not? No matter what has happened to us, no matter the sin that's taken place in our lives or the things that have come our way, it may be evil and it may be sinful and it may seem like, God, what have I done to deserve this? But there's no telling what God is actually up to and going to do through the sinful acts of other people. I mean, I think about some of the worst times in my life where I thought this is just the worst. This is the the worst thing that's ever happened to me. What have I done to deserve this? I'm thinking, Lord, kill me now. And I look back on those times now and I go, oh, that's what you were doing. I can trace it almost. It's amazing. I I love doing this, looking back on my own life and just tracing the hand of God. Have you ever taken time to do this? Because it'll blow your mind. And I see in those horrible things that happened to me, in the things that were done to me, where I was thinking, why would you do this, God? My thought now is, thank you, Lord, for this happening. If it hadn't been for those things, I wouldn't be a Christian today. If I hadn't been for those things, I wouldn't be where I am today. The things that I wished had never happened to me, now I'm praising God that they did. You can't change what's happened to you. but so there's no telling what God can do through the things that have happened to you. And so, that's, uh, that's pretty much the end of Genesis. There are some other things we can say here, but, but one other thing I want you to notice just very quickly in verse 21 in, in conclusion. As Joseph says to his brothers, So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Something I want you to notice here is that the people who were responsible for everything that happened to Joseph, the people who deserve grace and mercy and forgiveness and provision, the least of all the people, are the ones to receive it. And Joseph, the one who is offended, is the one who's willing to provide for the ones who offended him. There's another picture of Jesus there. We who have offended him so greatly and sinned against him so freely and willingly are the ones who receive forgiveness from him, mercy from him, grace from him, and provision What an amazing God we serve. If you want to think about this for your own life, the thing that I would leave with you is I would say that Christians are to give to others what we've received from the Lord. Do you see that here? You don't know why Joseph forgave his brothers? It wasn't because they were deserving of it. Right? (laughs) They were lying again to try to get that forgiveness. He forgave them because the Lord had forgiven him. You know the reason why Joseph showed them mercy and grace? It's Because as he looked back on his life, Joseph saw, God has given me nothing but mercy and grace. The reason that Joseph was willing to provide for his brothers even after what they had done for him was not, again, because they deserved it. It's because he looked on his life and he said, everything that I have has come from the Lord. He's going to provide for them because the Lord has provided for Him. and There's a great model here for us as Christians, is there not? We need to give to others what we have received from the Lord. So Christian, if you've been forgiven of God, you need to forgive others. Well, but pastor, you don't know what they've done. I don't. They didn't even say they're sorry. Might not have. They might not feel any remorse at all. Were you... Deserving of God's forgiveness when you received it. And the Bible tells us in Colossians 3.13 that we're to forgive others as God in Christ has forgiven us. So regardless of if they apologize, if they feel sorry, if they feel remorse, if they're worthy and deserving, regardless of any of that, we're to forgive them. Because that's what God did for you in Christ. When we're wanting to hold grudges, when we're wanting to withhold grace and mercy when we're wanting to be overly critical all the time of everybody we need to think what has God given to me He hasn't been overly critical of me He's been extremely patient God has given me tons of mercy He's given me tons of grace He has been long suffering shouldn't we give that to others I mean, don't you think we should give people the benefit of the doubt most of the time? We're, we're pretty quick to jump on people and be critical and criticize them and expect the worst and say, well, they've got, they've got plots and schemes. They're up to this. They're up to that. Or, or we have expectations for them. we like, I've told them about this. They need to do that. They know they've messed up in this way. They should act this way. People aren't perfect, right? We're not perfect. People take time. It's hard for people to change. And God has been patient with us. Shouldn't we be willing to give the benefit of the doubt to others? There are all sorts of ways you can think about this in your own life, but the the principle that it comes down to is whatever we have received from God, we need to be willing to give to others. And this is how the book of Genesis ends, right? It's with this beautiful picture of what God is going to do in Christ. And we're seeing it here in Joseph. That the ones who offended him are the ones who receive mercy and forgiveness and grace from him, even though they don't deserve it, they're not worthy of it, Joseph is a model of what Jesus would ultimately be, that we would find mercy and grace and forgiveness and restoration and provision in him, and praise God for that. So that's our study of Genesis, and we only went three minutes over. All right, Gene, you get the final word of wisdom for the entire book of Genesis, so don't mess it up.